often have said that I think the longer I practice, the less I understand, which is not what I thought was going to happen, right? I thought that I knew everything when I finished fellowship and that I would just continue to gain all this knowledge and experience and that by 20 years into practice, I would know everything. That couldn't be further from the truth. But I say that because just to your point about you've been to multiple different doctors and you've, you know, had multiple different tests. And unfortunately, I think there is a lot of heterogeneity of the kinds of specialists, even though we're all rheumatologists out there. Welcome back to Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, guys. Yay. Hey, girl. Hi. Hi. Okay, so today's guest is Dr. Natalie Azar. She is an Emmy-nominated NBC News medical contributor covering all major breaking medical news stories for the Today Show and MSNBC. In addition to her work at NBC, she is a regular guest on Dr. Oz and has written extensively for Everyday Health and ZocDoc and has been an online video contributor for healthguru.com and sharecare.com. Dr. Natalie, a fellow New Jersey Westfield mama who also has a labradoodle, is an assistant clinical professor of medicine and rheumatology at NYU Langone Medical Center in Manhattan. She has been in private practice since 2001 and currently sees patients at both the Center for Muscular Skeletal Care, that's a mouthful, and at the Joan H. Tisch Center for Women's Health. A longstanding member of the faculty in the Department of Rheumatology, Dr. Natalie's expertise is in the field of arthritis and autoimmunity, and she specializes in diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, and osteoporosis. Dr. Natalie received her BA from Wellesley College and went on to graduate from Cornell. Heidi, get excited. (laughs) Honors in anesthesiology. She completed her internship and residency at NYU Bellevue Hospital Center and her rheumatology fellowship at NYU Hospital for Joint Diseases. We can't think of a better guest to talk about all things autoimmunity, but First, Jamie's got our weekly catch-up topic. I sure do. Hey, guys, it's Jamie. Okay, so we I've seen this pop up a few times in my feed. There's this great little article going around. I think it started from somebody's tweet where the question was posed, what are some phrases from 2020 that would have made no sense in 2019? So, guys, I'll let you guys start. What are your favorites? Christine, what is your favorite? Um, I like the one that says I'm using the hand sanitizer with aloe vera as a treat because I don't know about you, but my hands are like disintegrating from all the bleach and all the cleaners and the alcohol. I basically rub rubbing alcohol on everything. Yeah, we like drink it. The other yeah. day I was like, my, my pineapple tastes like does bleach. Cat, does that get in the way that. of sobriety? Right. <laughs> Just, Just a question. Just like, Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely, I, I feel that. And like, when you find yourself like, like Clorox wiping your produce oh. and you're like, okay, but I, I'm going to eat that tomato. Like maybe that wasn't the best choice. And then you're like, eh, you know, better of two evils. Right. And remember when we were all like, oh, is it natural beauty? Is it this? Is it that? And now we're like, can I wear this bleach? Can I put this bleach on my face? Can I take a bath in Clorox? It's all I, I think is like, it's so-and-so's birthday. We're going to do a drive-by. Like imagine that in 2019, we're going to do a drive-by. We're going to do a drive-by. Yeah, I was reading one of them, one of the responses to that initial tweet, and it was like, um, we're going to have Maggie's fifth birthday. We're going to give out cupcakes in the front yard. You need to bring a mask if you're getting out of your car, you know, like, and it's so normalized. What? Or I I went to the bank without a mask and I couldn't get in, you know, or like. (laughs) I've been having discussions like with my mom friends that, that go along the lines of, this is Heidi speaking, I need to fire my nanny and hire a tutor. Totally. Because all of this virtual learning, it's like, it's a totally different capability set if you actually expect to get any work done from home while your children are doing school from home. You need somebody who's capable of doing their schooling now. That's literally true. And we were talking before we started up the show about how 2020 has turned us all into IT specialists. So my favorite one was... 
that was a beautiful Zoom wedding. Because when I think about how many things over the past six months, we celebrated George's 60th birthday, my 40th birthday, my my son's first birthday, and all of them were essentially Zoom occasions, you know? Like, we had to think about it through that lens. Like, okay, we're going to make the, the, the gluten-free blueberry muffins for the people that are here, and then we're going to set everything up with signs on the table for the people joining on the Zoom. You know what I mean? It's a whole new world. It's so crazy. And like all of those, there's this platform, I think we used it for your birthday, James, Tribute, that I've had so many requests for. That's a platform that somebody reaches out with a tribute and you can upload your videos wishing this person a happy birthday. It was a very special thing to get on my birthday and I had no idea it was coming and it fully dissolved me into tears. It was like literally my sister, Lindsay, and my husband, George, worked together in cahoots and kept it secret from me. And I had a video with like 25 of the most important people from my life, including these ladies, wishing me a happy birthday. And it was the best gift I've ever gotten. So I think the the, the end of this combo is that there's silver linings everywhere. A lot of these things have been new ways to celebrate and learn and connect. And, you know, a lot of it's good, but a lot of it's friggin' weird. <laughs> yep. All right. I well, that's, that's good. It. Let's move on and to a little bit of reality. Speaking of weird, <laughs> let's move into our topic. <laughs> so listen, nearly 50 million Americans suffer from an autoimmune disorder, yet it can take a person an average of five years and five doctors to get diagnosed, according to the American Autoimmune Related Diseases Association. So this is Heidi speaking, and I'm actually in the middle of my journey, unfortunately. Really? Tell me. So I've been getting, um, I've been getting test results with high ANA levels for more than a year now. And I finally, finally, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I was like, oh, I'm going to put off going to see a rheumatologist for two weeks. <laughs> Silly me. Yeah, two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. And then it'll blow over. Now, like, I finally got back to New York City after being gone for four and a half months and scheduled an appointment with a rheumatologist and, you know, got all these blood results back, tested positive for Lyme disease somehow, um, had really high ANA levels, but didn't test positive for a specific autoimmune thing that he was looking for and then got some more blood tests. Those were also inconclusive. And I feel like this is about the time where I'm like, all right, well, this is too annoying. And I just stopped trying to figure out what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know Megan has also had her own experience. And I've been through the same thing. I have the, the ANA markers, elevated levels, but don't really, I have celiac disease, but I don't present, you know, for anything else. My sister's now going through the same thing. She has the elevated ANA levels and has gone through serious of tests and doctors. So we just feel like this is becoming more and more prevalent, more and more common, and we just want to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, and that's why we're so excited to have Ooh, Dr. Natalie Azar, yeah. an authority in autoimmune diseases here with us today to address the concerning rise in autoimmune disease yeah. and how we can help ourselves and help doctors help us. I know, right? Well, I mean, I feel like, so. so first of all, the story of a woman with a positive ANA um, who goes from doctor to doctor <laughs> is pretty much like the story of, you know, the rheumatologist's life, if you will. Here's the kind of like the teaching and the conversation that most rheumatologists will have with their patients faced with the conundrum of the positive ANA. Wait, and can we even pause, already, Dr. Natalie, and, and explain to yeah. people what ANA means, what it stands yes. for, what it's even an indication of? Um, before I even do that, Megan, I'm going to actually retract what I said when I said most rheumatologists, because I feel like there's, there's certain things that if you go through any rheumatology training program in this country, all fellows turn into rheumatology attendings and have a certain, um, you know, fund of knowledge that's consistent among training programs. And that's just considered, you know, like uh, sort of gospel to the rheumatologist or to the, in, in the rheumatology world. But I feel like we also have to come to this discussion with um, a little bit more uh, humility and reality in terms of there are, I often have said that I think the longer I practice, the less I understand, which is not what I thought was going to happen, right? I thought that I knew everything when I finished fellowship and that I would just continue to gain all this knowledge and experience and that by 20 years into practice, I would know everything. That couldn't be further from the truth. But I say that because 
just to your point about you've been to multiple different doctors and you've, you know, had multiple different tests. And unfortunately, I think there is a lot of heterogeneity of the kinds of specialists, even though we're all rheumatologists out there. Some people, and we'll get into this a little bit later, who are more inclined to think about uh, an integrative or functional medicine approach to patients. Um, and then those of us, myself included, who were very, very traditionally and conventionally trained in rheumatology. So let's just start with the ANA because that's Honestly, it can sometimes be the easiest consult for a rheumatologist to have because very often I can just reassure patients that I don't think there's anything going on and that their ANA really just represents a a variant of normal. The ANA stands for an anti-nuclear antibody, um, and that's exactly what it is. It is your body making an antibody to some of your own genetic material, nuclear. Um, The sort of just the gestalt or the 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 uh, the way to think about autoimmune disease in, in autoimmune diseases in its simplest terms is that your immune system, um, if it's working properly, is able to correctly identify a foreign invader like a virus or a bacteria or a fungus um, and mount an immune response against that. Sometimes making antibodies, like in the case of COVID, which you've all heard about, um, and it can fight off infections, and then it has a memory, and then it holds on to those antibodies so that the next time it's exposed, um, it's ready to fight again. Unfortunately, um, in the case of autoimmune disease, we lose that what's called self-tolerance. So your body no longer um, is tolerant of itself and starts to see itself as something foreign. And the target of that can be anything. In the case of multiple sclerosis, it's neurological. In the case of kidney damage in in lupus, it's the kidney. Um, And the body starts to make antibodies against itself. Sometimes those antibodies can be directly problematic, meaning that if you look at a microscope, you can see deposits of antigen, which is the, the trigger plus antibody in the kidney. And you're like, oh my God, this antibody that I'm, a level that I'm checking in the lab is actually in my kidney and it's doing damage. Sometimes the antibody is just a marker. It's just a biomarker and in and of itself isn't really pathologic, but it's, you know, triggering an immune reaction somewhere in the body that's causing a problem. So that's just sort of the overview umbrella of, you know, autoimmune disease in general. Now the ANA, we talk about all the time. I have a positive ANA, I have a positive ANA, I have a positive ANA. Um, So the ANA is kind of like, the first, I always say it's like the tip of the iceberg. Most people with autoimmune disease, but with some caveats, will have a positive ANA. But the reverse is not true. It's a very, very, very nonspecific test, meaning many people have positive ANAs. Up to 15% of normal, healthy people, particularly women, can have a positive ANA, and it's not associated with any underlying autoimmune disease. So the, another way of saying that is that it's very sensitive because it picks up a lot of, you know, we pick up a lot of ANAs when we do blood tests, but it's not very specific. This is just a question from Heidi. Yeah. Is, can it also, I was told, I don't know if it's true or not, that you can have higher ANAs if you've been sick recently? Totally. That, okay. totally. So what I often will tell people is that it's not just about whether or not your ANA is positive or negative. It's also how positive it is. Um, And it also matters what kind of pattern it makes under a microscope when a human being actually looks at your blood and it sees the antibody with the trigger, AKA antigen, and it makes a fluorescent pattern under a microscope and different patterns have different disease associations. And some patterns are more associated with the 15% of the people who have normal ANAs and have no underlying illness. So, and as you said, the titer can change. So we start to pay more attention. The first reported positive ANA will usually come back as 1 to 40. The stronger the antibody is, um, the higher that titer becomes, 1 to 80, 1 to 160, 1 to 320, 1 to 640, and it just keeps doubling. We start to get interested around 1 to 320. So patients very often who come in and they say, my doctor referred me for a positive ANA, and I take a look. And so the first thing I look at, now, the first thing I say is, why did the doctor check the ANA? Because It's not appropriate to just screen young women with, or anybody for that matter, with ANAs, unless there's a specific complaint. More often than not, a patient will say, well, I was feeling tired or I was having some hair loss or, and I'm like, fine, that's totally fine. But no one is uh, an advocate of or promoting just checking ANAs on people. That's not appropriate use of the, of the test. 
Um, so then, you know, so I explained to the patient, sometimes that can be the beginning and the end of the conversation. I'm like, we don't need an hour for that. You know, you have a one to 40 and you have no symptoms and you have no family history. Goodbye. You know, you never, you don't need to come back to see me again. Um, so yeah. And to your point, Heidi, yes. If you've been sick with a viral syndrome or, you know, anything, um, and you check in, not a good time to check an ANA, um, because we do see that the titer can sometimes go up and, and then come down again. And then we also see positive ANAs in, you know, people, again, like I said, with other autoimmune diseases like thyroid and potentially celiac, Megan. And um, so they're certainly not specific for just the rheumatologic illnesses like lupus and Sjogren's and, and RA. But there's like a hundred autoimmune diseases. There's a ton. Like that's the insane part. Yeah. I have and a I question. Think like, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Christine. Uh, um, I was speaking earlier and mentioning that my husband had, it was um, an auto, I'm looking at it here, an organ-specific autoimmune. So that was with his yes. eye, and it was uh-huh. called serpiginous choreoiditis, which it, it, they had doctors baffled for, you know, for weeks on end. And he went to Johns Hopkins and I think the New York um, Eye and Ear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they finally figured it out and they treated him and it, and it, you know, it calmed down a little bit, but he can see out of whichever eye, um, I forgot which eye, I think it was his right eye. He can now see like, you know, only very partial vision in that one eye. And I mean, he's a photographer and a graphic designer and, and that, you know, they don't know it could kick back up again. It's, they say it has to do with toxins in the body and it's just very unknown what caused it. Um, it's a you know, very I know. And one. I think that's probably been, I, I would say that the most challenging thing about autoimmune disease in general and sort of that umbrella term is that rheumatologists don't treat all autoimmune diseases, right? And I and sometimes patients don't really understand that. And I'm like, well, you know, for example, MS as you know, one of the, I think, better known autoimmune diseases, neurologists treat that. And, you know, if it's IBD or, you know, let's say just psoriasis, a dermatologist treats that. If it's Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an endocrinologist treats that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to your point, yes. And I, there's some really, these autoimmune encephalopathies, like these very, very interesting brain diseases, interesting, challenging, interesting. <laughs> you know, um, devastating. I, I bet probably a better word than interesting. Um, you know, so I think, there's, there's probably not one organ system that is spared from, from autoimmune disease. In fact, I can, can I ask a question yeah. when people like, what is the usual precursor to somebody coming to see you? So like my sister has an autoimmune disease. It was causing her hair to fall out and thin and also a bunch of other things, but there were things that could have been related to like a lot of different things. And, and Christine, yeah. you were talking about toxins. You know, we hear so much in the world today. We're like, am I eating the wrong thing? Did I have heavy metals in my bath water? Like did mm-hmm. my, you know what I'm saying? Like what, yeah. should, should my mom have gotten my baby, formula from an artisanal maker in like the South of France. Like what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. Like at what point should somebody with like just weird symptoms consider maybe this is an autoimmune disease? You know, I think that, um, that's a great question. I think, you know, your first pass is going to be with your primary care doctor. Right. And so remember that many of the symptoms are very nonspecific, right? So let's say the most common symptoms or some of the most common symptoms of autoimmune disease would be fatigue, maybe some joint pain, some hair loss, maybe some unusual rashes. Well, I mean, that could literally be anything, literally, not everything, but you know, a lot of things. So you go to your doctor and they'll do the routine lab tests, you know, which checking some vitamin levels and your chemistries and your thyroid function and stuff like that. And in that scenario, they probably would check an ANA, as I said, especially if you're a young woman, even if you're not, but just, you know, sort of to screen for autoimmune. But when they're screening for autoimmune diseases with an ANA, they're really thinking along the lines of like a lupusy Sjogren's type of thing, because again, an ANA is so nonspecific, it's not going to screen for every autoimmune disease under the sun. Um, but really, Jamie, to your point, like, I, I, there's no specific time frame on it. But a lot of times people can have like a post-viral syndrome that lasts for a while, you know, so there's not a hard and fast rule, but I would say like if your symptoms are three months, not abating or or getting worse, I would say certainly by the six month mark, you know, I mean, you could theoretically do it at the six week mark. I think you have to trust yourself and trust your instinct. You're like, I just don't feel right. It's, this isn't me. Go to the doctor. Don't, you know, no reason to wait. 
I mean, so, and by the time patients come to see us, they've already done this. They're like, I eliminated this and I eliminated that, you know, out of my diet and I've tried these things and it hasn't helped. So, you know, you can do those kinds of things and tweak, maybe exercise, you know, differently or, um, you know, get a little bit better sleep, try to cut out sugar. You know, you can tweak a little, a couple of things at home, but if you're just not feeling well, you should go in. What about, this is Christine. Um, I have, we know somebody actually, this is horrible, but um, out of nowhere, she was pregnant and she carried, you know, full term. And when she delivered the baby, the body attacked the fetus, I guess. And, and it, she had a stillborn, but, and they found out that was an autoimmune because the body was attacking. They thought something was wrong. So, I mean, that's so fluke and rare, I think, I but it, that she, I don't think she ever had anything before that, or, you know, so it, it just pops up in your, in your system sometimes out of, mm-hmm. for no rhyme or reason. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that just seems like wild, but it I know. Happen. Well, I mean, pregnancy and for example, lupus is notoriously a bad combination, you mm-hmm. know, um, rheumatoid arthritis. So the saying goes is, you know, tends to do better during pregnancy. Um, although I have a patient who's six weeks, preg- six weeks pregnant, who's, who has RA, who's not feeling good right now. So I'm like, I hope you're not my outlier. You know, I want her to feel well. The relaxin um, will kick in. What's that? My, and I would say Hopefully my celiac disease, I didn't present yeah. as celiac until after I had my second child. My kids yes. are all 15 months apart. And it was right. after my second child where yep. I had tingling my hands and numbness. And that's there is, when I there was is diagnosed There is absolutely with something about pregnancy and autoimmune diseases, whether it's the hormonal fluctuations, other changes um, that definitely trigger, auto, I mean, I always get in that postpartum period, certainly with my RA patients who do great, I'm like, make an appointment with me about four to six weeks after you deliver. And that's, you know, usually without fail, they'll, they'll flare at that point. So yeah, you know, we don't know. I, I wish that, I think the holy grail of autoimmune diseases, especially the ones that I treat are what causes this, right? Because if you know what causes it, you could theoretically prevent it. But I almost think that's never really going to happen because, you know, we usually say, especially with something like a lupus, but with many autoimmune diseases, we have this like two hit hypothesis, almost like, we use that analogy or that uh, we talk about that with oncology. Like there's a, some genetic mutation that predisposes you to something. And then there's an environmental trigger that actually causes disease. Um, And that's generally what we think of with uh, you know, with autoimmune diseases, like smoking, for example, is one of the most significant uh, known environmental risk factors for lupus and RA and things like that. So if you have the genetic susceptibility, which just means it's in your family, you know, we don't screen the population for for these genetic um, markers, but in the right person, kind of like a perfect storm, the right person with the right genetic makeup, with the right environmental trigger, and maybe something else that we don't know, um, and boom, they start to develop disease. And what are sort of the, like you brought up smoking, what are the more common triggers like caffeine, stress? Like what are they? No, not so much. No, not, not, not that I'm aware of as in terms of studies. And, you know, maybe there are studies out there. I don't, I don't really. Um, I brought those I, two up just cause I know those are like things that exacerbate um, Raynaud's, which I know is often a, right, right not, not, sure. not an autoimmune disease, but often a sign of one. Yeah. No, I mean, I think generally speaking, we're usually pretty vague about, about triggers, unfortunately, because it really is so different for everyone. I mean, like I said, I would say universally smoking. Yes. Universally UV radiation sunburns for lupus and Sjogren's and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't know if it's Western diet. Is it processed foods? Is it, um, is it illness? Is it a toxic exposure? But again, it's probably slightly different for everyone. Um, you know, for example, patients, many patients with lupus have had Epstein-Barr, um, and that's a pretty... Is that mono? Yeah, it's mono, um, and that gets into the realm of chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, MECFS, which is a wholly different um, condition that if we talk about you feeling dismissed by, you know, a positive ANA, well, the entire population of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis, MECFS, um, have certainly uh, suffered that for decades. Although, as you guys have probably been hearing in the news, they're starting to finally talk about it, um, more mainstream conversation about it because of COVID and long haulers, because they are 
um, as a group starting to resemble um, an MECFS type of picture, these patients who have chronic lingering symptoms after their COVID. Why is autoimmune so disproportionately female? We don't know. I mean, other than to say it's it's hormone, it's hormonal. You know, many of our diseases affect, you know, primarily we affect us in our childbearing years. There's, you know, there are there are there are definitely differences in men and women's immune systems. Um, there was in the beginning of COVID, there were articles written about why it is that men seem to be faring were faring a little bit uh, worse than women. Um, that perhaps they weren't able to mount as robust a, an immune response to the virus early on. And so they would go into that second phase where they would have that like, you know, hyperimmune response, that cytokine storm because they couldn't get rid of the virus. We know that men don't clear colds and flus as well as women do. So the man flu is a real thing. So, you know, there are, there are subtle differences in, in our immune systems um, plus hormones that probably accounts for it. And what can we do? Like what healthy behaviors, practices, like what can we do to avoid autoimmune disease? Can we avoid it the same way we try to avoid cancer or? Right. So, you know, usually what I say, and by the way, this is when I said from the beginning that like, um, you know, there's been a real rise in um, functional medicine and integrative medicine practices in this country, which I think has been an amazing thing. Um, because they look at the body very differently, right? You know, we make a diagnosis and put you on medicine to treat the symptom, but we very rarely can actually fix the underlying problem, right? <laughs> like I can't make your lupus go away, but I can treat the symptoms kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that, Megan, because I feel like there's, and, and there is work being done on this, but sort of to say, this is what we know about the disease and what it does. So where early in life, if you, if there's a susceptibility there, can we really make a difference? But to my knowledge beyond diet um, and exercise and not smoking, for example, um, I'm not aware. I don't have, I don't have any other great advice for people. And I'm just being completely Mm -hmm. honest about that, you know? And does that deal, when you say diet and exercise and those things, does that deal with inflammation levels? Is that what you're trying to... And so for me, my biggest thing is that my patients follow an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, a lot of times, and I'll explain what that means, um, but a lot of times I I will see patients who say, you know, I have, my mom has RA and it's really bad and my grandmother has RA and I'm worried I'm going to get it. Is there anything I can do? Um, and so basically I'm like, well, don't start smoking. Like I'll go back to the smoking because it's such a big one. And like, nobody smokes anymore, doctor. I know that's what I keep saying. I'm like, I don't know a single person who smokes. I know. It blows my mind when I see people that this is Heidi and I'm back in New York. And like, I watch people take off their masks and smoke. And I'm like, no, Oh, like what's wrong with you? Like to to go that far. Um, but an anti-inflammatory diet, I think does go a long way. And I, I say it to people and I'm like, it's not really a cop-out. Like it is really important sugar. I never say this about anything, but I say it about sugar. It is the devil. Um, I agree. It is. It's just so bad. It, It is. It's like, if aside from the fact that it is completely and totally pro inflammatory, it just feeds autoimmune disease. It feeds fibromyalgia. It feeds literally every, every disease that I treat. If I, you know, if I make a pact with patients or a deal with them and I'm like, just please try to do this for me. Tell me if you don't feel better. Like there's never one person who says I feel worse when I eliminate, (laughs) you know, simple sugars and, and processed foods. But in addition, you know, it's like whatever your body doesn't use in quick energy, it converts it to triglycerides, which is just fat that builds up in your arteries. So not, I'm not like an extremist and yes, you have to have cookies and yes, you're allowed to have cake and yes, you have, you have to be able to live your life, but, and it's not a hard and fast rule, but I'm like, you know, think about it like 90 to 95% of what you put in your body should think about, you know, you're operating the best machine you have, which is your body. So, you know, if you had a really expensive car, you would treat it, you would treat it well when you, you wouldn't give it crappy gas or something. (laughs) I don't know. So that's kind of an analogy that I use sometimes with people. But so, so say I have elevated ANA levels and I yes. eat like crap, do they get even higher or like, am I, there's, we don't, I know. don't think so. Um, I don't think that study has been done. 
Um, but it could be wrong because if you Google it, you could probably find it. But um, no, I don't think so unless it unless it translated, Megan, into you feeling systemically unwell. Like if you're like, I feel awful right now. But I wouldn't, you know, I think the titer of the ANA is most useful definitely for an active lupus patient, you know, where we're like, okay, we're going to look, but more even than that, we look at the double-stranded DNA, which is the specific antibody. So I don't get too, I tell patients not to get too crazy about titers of ANAs, by the way, because it also depends where you do the test. You know, it's a commercial test. So some people go to LabCorp and then they do it at Quest and then we have them run at NYU. And sometimes it's different almost in every lab. Um, sometimes so bad that it's Why? negative in one place and positive. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's a different, it's a different assay, you know, it's a commercial lab. I think, I mean, I won't, I keep on referencing COVID because I feel like we've all become more comfortable with talking about reagents and this and that, but you can see how, you know, a lab suddenly gets a different, you know, assay from a different company and they run it, you know, I'm not an expert on how labs are run, but suffice it to say, they can definitely be different. I think the biggest thing for me is like, if I have a patient who was, you know, strumming along with a one to 80 and then suddenly they're one to 1280. I take, I repeat it because mm. rule of thumb, if you, if you get a test that you weren't expecting like that out of the, you know, um, range, um, that you repeat it. But if it's real, then I take it seriously. I don't get excited about one, one time it's one to 80. The next time it's one to 160. Oh, this time it's one to 320. Let's keep an eye on it. You know, that kind of thing. But I don't go we don't go crazy with little fluctuations like that. So will the ANA level be higher if you're like actively experiencing symptoms as opposed to like, if it's sort of in remission? We think so. Yeah. You know? Um, but again, based on what I just said, I would say that it's just not, um, it's not as reliable as that, you know, to, to put so much weight on that. Um, there are other things to follow for, you know, other markers of inflammation, for example, if they ever are high, like a C-reactive protein or a sedimentation rate, you know, those are sort of the more conventional tests that, that people follow um, to, that, that might correlate with quote unquote disease activity or symptoms. But yes, I mean, again, if, if the ANA can suddenly be really, really high after you were sick, well, you know, it, it's, it's logical to think that, um, that it would fluctuate a little bit based on your symptoms. So there's a piece of me. So I have elevated ANA levels. They often come up that way. And I have a cu- my first cousin has lupus. There's mm-hmm. sometimes a piece of me that feels like I'm just sitting around waiting to get lupus. Waiting like, for it to happen. One day I'm just going to wake up with lupus, but you know, it's not today. Is there any truth to that? There's truth to the fact that it's a disease that is genetic, you know, that, I mean, yes, we do certainly have people who don't know that they have a family history and develop the disease, but no, I mean, first of all, Megan, it's not even like if your mom had it, that you would definitely get it. Like it's not the genetics of that. It's not Mendelian like that, you know, I mean, it's in, it's in the family there. So you have to imagine that there might be some, you know, genetic. And if I have celiac, does that mean I'm lucky enough to get more autoimmunes? Cause I've already I was got wondering one. that too. Yes. One, like I always say, like begets like, Uh, you know, autoimmune diseases do like to cluster. Um, You know, we see that sort of with, you know, people with Hashimoto's thyroid, you know, disease and Sjogren's and celiac um, and things like that. But that's where for you, because I know you, Megan, that you're such a healthy person. That doesn't mean you can't have cake, (laughs) but like you keep on exercising you keep on but she does, well, yeah. she does. And the I'm exercise sure she part, well. I got down the bacon and the alcohol might be my, my two downfalls. <laughs> oh God. Well, you can drink. I had to Google this for something at some point, maybe it was for a show, but like you, I mean, you can have alcohol that has the least amount of sugar. I'm not telling you to start drink like doing shots, but you know, <laughs> it has a lot less sugar than wine. Dr. Instance. Natalie told me to do just, shots, friends. Mm, that's that's shots, why I'm on shots, the floor shots, right now. That's shots, really shots, not, shots, that's shots. not the headline. <laughs> Alcohol is a factor too, and that, but it's the sugar in alcohol. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, a lot of patients as they get older also have less tolerance to alcohol. So I think that there is something to that. And definitely people who have, my fibromyalgia patients don't tolerate alcohol anymore. So um, 
and I feel like I've looked into it, but my, my memory for these things is just not that good. So it's, I mean, it's definitely sugar, but I think it's the alcohol too. And it's probably a whole host of other things. Well, at least I don't smoke. Okay. Yeah. I know. Don't smoke. (laughs) Don't start that in quarantine. This is Heidi piggybacking off of Megan. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was curious, you know how Megan asked if because she has celiac, is she more likely to be predisposed to other autoimmune? Uh-huh. So I have 8 billion allergies. I was born with them. They're really bad. Like my throat mm-hmm. closes over the tiniest little thing. And um, after my twins were born, they just turned five. Mm-hmm. About a year later, I just erupted in a, in full body hives for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't go away um, no matter how many allergists I saw. And then finally, Finally, they gave me a a course of steroids, which calmed them down because the allergy medicine wasn't working. Mm -hmm. So my question is, as someone with allergies, and and by the way, these hives have repeated themselves. There is no rhyme or reason to them and no Mm -hmm. one figured them out. So that was one of, that was like kind of the first time that somebody was like, you should maybe go see a rheumatologist and whatever. Mm -hmm. Do allergies make you predisposed to autoimmune simply because of the inflammation from them or... Yeah. I mean, we definitely, you know, chronic urticaria or chronic hives, like they start working you up for autoimmune diseases because it is, it it can sometimes be um, a manifestation of, I have rarely seen it if ever as the sole presenting symptom of lupus. No, I have like a thousand. What's that? (laughs) I have so many other symptoms that they send. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Were you ever worked up for mast cell disorders? No. Mm-mm. What is that? What is that? Yeah, I would love to know. <laughs> what is like, I'm going to write it down right now. <laughs> Maybe that's what we all have. Yeah. Um, let's, okay. Let's this is where, I know, this is where life starts to get complicated because this is not my area of expertise, but I ended up sort of, I just have knowledge about these conditions, even though I wasn't trained to know them because there's, there's this group of conditions that they share a lot of clinical similarities, but there are also diseases that aren't so well understood. Like, Ehlers-Danlos, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, mast cell activation syndromes or mast cell disorders. And okay, so, well, basically it's like an overactive allergic system. Hmm. The mast cells are the cells in the body that release histamine that cause, you know, flushing and itching and hives and things like that. I went through a period of four months where I had a fever every single night. Every time yeah. I ate dinner, I would get a fever. <laughs> right. That's kind like of what that. I'm talking about, um, yeah. where it's just like, sometimes there can be disruptions. Like, I don't know if you guys have heard of um, like POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome with like autonomic dysfunction. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot that can go wrong in one's body that is not testable. That is not like, and this is why like, you know, Heidi, you've had an a and people can't figure out what's wrong. All I can tell you is, not having examined you or knowing your history at all (laughs) is that I believe you. (laughs) Um, You probably have thought at various different times that people think that you're, you know, anxious or depressed or something like that. Right. Because Mm -hmm. you have physical complaints without a good explanation for them, which is, you know, the, the classic tragedy of women in healthcare and women having to go to, to the doctor. Um, But we can offline talk about, that and let me see if you have any other symptoms that would make me think that you should get evaluated for that. But like allergists can, you know, sometimes um, diagnose it. But I think that again, there's, there's sort of this like group of diseases that you learn about in medical school and there's a test for them and there's usually a treatment. And then there's a whole host of other conditions that number one, don't either don't get any attention in medical school, or if they do get attention in medical school, it's like, oh, you know, this is psychosomatic or it's not real. I mean, that was basically the the story of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia for years and years and years, and kind of still is the case with with chronic fatigue. Do you know that there are like about two and a half million cases of or people who live with chronic fatigue syndrome in this country, and very few people actually understand what it is, and its real name is myalgic encephalomyelitis twice the number of people who have multiple sclerosis and everyone knows who MS is. And before we had MRIs 30 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago, women with MS were called hysterical, as you can imagine, because it's like, doc, I don't feel good. I have tingling. I have numbness. I'm numbness. I'm tired. Like, well, you're fine. Your neuro exam is fine. Your CAT scan's fine. So therefore you're fine. You're depressed. 
That's what happens to people all the time. That's so what devastating. Was what was the, the name you called it? Mass. Uh, oh, for Heidi? Yeah. Mass cell, like like an MCAS, we call it, like mass cell activation syndrome, mass cell disorders. There's a lot on it now, but so there are medicines that can be really helpful. Medicines like chromalin, sodium, which stabilizes the mast cell, you know, or just getting really put on like an antihistamine regimen. That's like a lot, you know, like Zyrtec, Zyrtec and Allegra and this, you know, like just a whole host of things just to control the symptoms. But a lot of times people with mast cell stuff can also have a lot of GI symptoms um, and a lot of unexplained things like real, like significant fatigue and just dizziness and not feeling well. And it's, and then you go to an allergist and you get tested for things and you're not allergic to anything. So what are they going to do? They send you out. Well, uh, this is Heidi speaking. I don't, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I do not believe in allergists because I have been seeing them my entire life since I was a child. My parents flew me all over the world Mm -hmm. to understand why I was having such severe reactions to so many things. And I, we never, ever, 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 ever had to say the same thing. Not ever. Yeah. And, I, oh, and, and at the end of them, the by the way, they always say, well, it's not an exact science. We rely more on your experience and these tests. And like, by the way, an allergist said that to me after I held my screaming two-year-old down while she, they raked her back and pricked her everywhere. And then they were mm-hmm. like, but just see, after they were done, they were like, just so you know, like, we're probably not going to get any results from this because they have to be exposed to the foods before they'll react here. And, and I'm like, tell me that ahead. Like, tell me that before you destroy her. Is there any hopeful research? Is there anything that's in progress research being done? I know there's no database for autoimmune disease in the same way there's a database for cancer. Is that true? Well, I mean, no, I think there's tons of research being done. I mean, you know, I mean, just our diseases alone, like lupus and RA and scleroderma and Sjogren's and things like the outlook for patients with those diseases is significantly better than it was 30 years ago. But I think what I'm not aware of is, is it, I mean, I think it's very disease specific. Like I don't, I correct. I don't know that there's, you know, one place where they're studying the thing that will become the like clue for all of it. You know, I mean, it's like, it's really immunology, right? It's really all about the immune system. And so, yeah, there are immunologists who are studying, um, a gazillion different things when it comes to autoimmunity and stuff like that. But, you know, I don't know that it's not, it's not necessarily a coordinated effort. I think that each, each disease is studied separately as far as I know, you know, I don't know that there's, well, I don't know, you know? So with that being the case, what would you say to people who, you know, have hey, high ANA levels or have been diagnosed or are in the process? What's the responsibility of the patient, the person, what can, what can that person do to sort of either help them get diagnosed or help them feel better? Are there any things there? You know, what's funny um, is that, and again, sorry, sorry to, to make a reference to COVID, but what a lot of those patients have been doing is, you know, seeking out each other, right? Online. Um, and I think normally that's I think normally we say, well, don't do that. You know, don't go to a chat room. You're going to hear the worst case scenarios or you might get bad advice or it could be dangerous or something. But the problem is that for most of the stuff that we're talking about, there is no really right place to go. You know, unless you're sometimes it's just you stumble upon something like, like somebody says something and then you see someone else and then they have a clue. And sometimes it's just that. But like there's no practical advice other than trust your symptoms, know your body. And unfortunately, you are going to be driving a lot of this yourself. You know, you are your best advocate. um, And you just keep on going until you find answers. But how do we help you? You know, like, how does your patient help you diagnose something? Or does that make sense? Well, I think the issue is, you know, in, in my world, when it comes to things like the diseases that I treat, like, it's you, I can usually make a diagnosis of my diseases. Like every once in a while, it's like, I really don't know what this patient has. Those are, those are not that common. You know, it's like, those are like, you know, crazy inflammatory diseases of the central nervous system as an inpatient consult, like those, you know, where we need a brain biopsy, like that's like the worst case scenario for us. But for, for the stuff that you're talking about, that's not, 
those are not easy diagnoses to make. But like I said, it's keep going to doctors. I know that sounds awful (laughs) to some people or look online, put the pieces together. Like you're literally a detective, right? And I don't know if I've helped or not. And we can talk after this. It's also. always helpful. Right. Well, that but is, maybe, that was the original maybe there stat, was something right? there that you'll go and say, let me, let me just, let me try this avenue. And maybe it does lead to something, but maybe seeing that doctor leads to something else. Like, I think you just have to keep going. But so I, I that, that was the original stat, right? Five years, five doctors. That is sometimes the journey. Yeah. You know, but if yeah. that's the average, that means some people are like 10 years, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, this is Jamie. Uh, we interviewed my mom the other day. My mom's Joan London. Um, so she's obviously somebody who's been through a lot of health issues and has obviously interviewed a lot of doctors and has made like, you know, being a women's health advocate a big part of her life's work. And she talks so much about being your own health advocate. And that's what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say. Like, if you go to one doctor and you don't get the answer, don't end there because it just, medicine doesn't work like that, especially if you have a complex disease that's difficult to diagnose. And, you know, it's, it is up to you and it is a job and you got to take it on and you got to do your digging and you got to like make the rounds sometimes. Right. I, I watched my sister do it. She trekked from doctor to doctor in New York, in LA, like she was all over the place, but it's what she had to do to make sure she was able to continue having her quality of life or to have that improve over the course of the next years. Mm-hmm. But so like in general, like should people to keep a diary of when they have a flare up of whatever symptom they're talking. Like, is that helpful? Is that, I'm basically asking like, what can they come to you with? That's definitely helpful. Um, because as much as you think that you're going to remember, most of us can't remember things from one day to the next, you know? Um, and a lot of times the patients will say to me, like, I'm sorry, like they'll have a lot of, you know, a lot of notes and, and they're like, I don't know what's important or not. So I just put everything down. Um, and that's right. You know, I mean, that's what you should do. Um, you know, just if you come in with an entire notebook to the doctor, like that can be a little overwhelming. I'm just being honest, you Mm -hmm. know, because we share your frustration. And I think, you know, I, I'm friends with, um, I don't know if, did you guys ever see the, the film unrest film about chronic fatigue syndrome, Jen Bria's work a couple of years ago. She writes a lot. She's very prolific. She's like incredibly smart. And she, um, she, she's very active on Twitter and she's so funny because it's like, she's very appropriately, um, you know, critical of, of, uh, you know, the medical establishment, right. The, you go to the doctor and they tell you there's nothing wrong with you and yada, yada, yada. You have to, I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but you have to know your body you know when something's wrong and unfortunately you do need to keep advocating for yourself because the problem is that, you know, our doctors are, some doctors are brilliant. I mean, we'd like to think that we're well-trained and that we're smart and we're, you know, benevolent and we're trying to help patients, but it's really hard when you don't know how to help someone. I mean, that's like, that's all we know how to do, right? It's like to help people. And if you can't help people, then we're basically feeling useless at our jobs. But the problem is you don't want to be that doctor who says, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. So therefore it's your problem, right? It's like you're depressed or you're anxious as opposed to just saying, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I believe that you're not feeling well and I'll try to help you. But I may not be able to. Just that honesty is like worth you know, a a lot for patients, just the validation that, you know, that we believe them makes all the difference in the world. We appreciate you. We appreciate kind of your simple, straightforward approach. Thank you for sharing all this with us today. It was fascinating. I learned a lot. Very eye-opening. It was very eye-opening, but also like, I like the transparency that like, you don't have all the answers. It doesn't work like that, but keep on plugging away. And I think that's the takeaway. Thank you so much. We always end with a couple of quick things. Really quick. We're going to do a lightning round. Are you ready? Oh, is this for me? It's for you. Yikes. Sure. <laughs> okay. They're, they're really tough questions. Get ready. Okay. <laughs> Number one, morning or evening workout? Oh, morning. Yeah. Yes. 
That is the correct answer. Not spin. If I don't do it in the morning, it doesn't happen. But not spin, right, Dr. Natalie? <laughs> not spin. Oh, well, that's question number two. What is your favorite workout? Uh, bar. Bar if I'm in a bar class um, or strength training. Love it. Do you, do you have anything online that you're loving right now? Peloton. Oh, cool. I'll I just downloaded spin. the app and I'm like, I don't like spinning, so I don't have a spin bike, so I don't do the biking, but it's like everything else. And yeah, I want them, if, if Peloton, if you're listening, I need bar classes too. That would be <laughs> well, you should, you should doing try some this parking cool. lot stuff. Have you gone to any of the outside stuff at Lifetime? <gasps> no, I haven't. I just heard they're doing some outside classes now. Um, okay, last question. Coffee, tea, or matcha? Coffee. All right, girl. Every doctor, 100% of doctors choose coffee. (laughs) Coffee. (laughs) Okay. The very last segment is called Karma Call. Megan just says it's so awesome, but I'm the yogi, so I will explain that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing guests, you, what is one actionable item that all of our listeners can take very small change that could yield a very giant result. So it could be something as simple as drinking a glass of water every morning. I mean, for me, it's exercise. Like if there's one thing that I teach, well, no, I, there's two things that I teach my kids. I want, I'm like manners and hygiene like that. Mm -hmm. I was just like, okay. Mm -hmm. But the third thing that I'm trying to teach them is almost every problem can be solved with exercise. You know, um, except for, by the way, except for chronic fatigue patients, but that's besides the point. (laughs) Right. um, Like seriously, you know, you're having a bad day, go for, go for a run. Um, You know, you're like, somebody broke up with you. You're, you're nervous about this, exercise it out. Literally. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did a double yesterday just because I couldn't process life. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Love it. I mean, it, like, I, I, I defy anyone to tell me that they don't feel physically and mentally so much better to deal with life after exercise. So you know what? Like, no one's ever said, I really regret that workout I just completed. Right. Ever. Exactly. Ever. That's a exactly. phrase that has never been uttered. <laughs> and well, for me, you. I find that sunlight, like an outdoor workout, like yeah. elevates that like to the 10th uh-huh. power. It makes it so much better. And I've had like over the year, I mean, you know, people are like, I just don't have time and da, 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 da. And I'm like, I listen, I practice what I preach. You know, mm-hmm. I commute, I have kids, I have two jobs. I have a lot of stuff, but I make the time, yeah. you know, you got it that long. You're our kind of girl. Well, thank you for being here with us. We loved Thanks, it. Guys. And we hope you loved it at home as well. Thank you for tuning in. Let's don't feel represent. Yeah. Don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere podcasts can be consumed. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at off the gram podcast. We'll see you next time.